The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History One on One. On this episode, we're going to be talking about six time All Star, World Series champion, Cy Young Award winning, Rookie of the Year, Gold Glove winning, Silver Slugger winning. 2014 inductee of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, Mexican Baseball Hall of Fame. Mexican Baseball Hall of Fame. Fernando Valenzuela. He was born in 1960. He's a former pitcher, obviously. He played 17 Major League seasons from 1980 to 1991 and 93 to 97. He played for six teams, but he was best remembered for his time in L.A. with the Dodgers. He was left-handed. Um, win-loss record of 173 and 153 with an ERA of 3.54. And he was notable for his unorthodox windup and for being one of a small number of pitchers who threw a screwball as a regular pitch. Mm-hmm. He never threw that hard, but the Dodgers felt he needed another pitch, and he was taught the screwball by Bobby Castillo in 1979. Nice. So he was born on November 1st, 1960, in a really small town in the Mexican state of Sonora, because Mexico has states, and I'm sure we all know that. And the town is called Echawakia. And it's a small, it, it's a small town. Like, if you ever watch the great 30 for 30 on Fernando Valenzuela called Fernando Nation, one of the original 30 for 30s, it talks about how small Echawakia is and how it's really, really hard to get to. <laughs> That's just one thing I remember from that. Just, you know, it's, you know, good luck trying to find a Chihuahua because it's just small, you know. But, you know, sometimes, you you know, you got, you know, if you're looking for talent, you got to go to those middle of nowhere towns in either the U.S. or worldwide to go find talent, you know. And that's what the Dodgers did. Now, his birthday was listed November 1st, 1960, but during his rookie season in 1981, Several commentators questioned his age, guessing him to be significantly older than 20. They thought he looked older than 20, you know. He's not the only Latin ball player that's happened to. Right. <laughs> like uh, oh, Fausto Carmona for the Indians years ago, he was like somebody else or something like that. Oh, people still question how old um, like Julio Franco really was and right. how old Albert Pujols really is. Or and... Satchel Page. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, and his parents were poor farmers who worked in the land and helped with the help of their children, and they are of Mayo indigenous ancestry. So, you know, they're part of. I guess you could say they're part of the old Mayans. You know, they were native Mexicans before the Spanish got there. So that's interesting. Now, you know, in 1977, Valenzuela he began his professional career when he signed with the Mayo State Nahovoa which is a Mexican team. And then a year later, he was sent to the Guanta, sorry, Guanajuato Tuzos of the Mexican Central League, posting a 5-6 win-loss record with a 2.23 ERA. 
I'm sure we're going to butcher some of these names, so y'all please bear with us. <laughs> yes. So if anybody knows what we're talking about, we apologize if we butcher it. And if you'd like to correct us, you can email us at baseballhis101 at gmail.com. So, and then the following year, the Mexican Central League, the Mexican, excuse me, the Mexican Central League was absorbed into the expanded Mexican League, automatically elevating then 18-0 bounds way to the AAA level. Pitching for the Leones de Yucatan, which is the Yucatan Lions, is in English that year. Valenzuela went 10 and 12 with a 2.49 ERA and 141 strikeouts. So, even though both the years in the Mexican Central League and the Mexican League, Valenzuela had losing records, there was still some promise. I mean, his both his ERAs were fairly low, 2.23, 2.49. Those are good ERAs, you know, for a season. And 141 strikeouts is nothing to sneeze at. You know, I mean, I don't know how many games you play in the, I don't know how many games you play in the Mexican League, but still, you strike out 141 guys in the season, that's pretty darn good. And then, you know, this is getting attention of major league teams. A number of MLB teams scouted Valenzuela during this time. Los Angeles Dodgers scout Mike Brito, or Brito, had gone to a game in Mexico to evaluate a shortstop named Ali Uskanga. Uskanga? I apologize. Uh, Valentine, sorry, not Valentine. <laughs> Valenzuela threw three balls to Escanga to fall behind in the count and then threw three straight strikes to strike out the batter. Brito said that later at that point, he forgot all about the shortstop. You know, he, you know Valenzuela made an impression on Brito. He's like, okay, who's this Ali Escanga guy? Screw him. This Valenzuela guy looks good. I'm interested in him. And the Dodgers, you know, bought the, they gambled on under Brito's recommendation. They gambled on Valenzuela, and they bought out his contract from the from the te- from the Mexican team on July 6, nineteen seventy nine, for one hundred twenty thousand dollars. I feel like it's a chunk of money in nineteen seventy nine for an unproven kid from Mexico. I would say so. Um, even yeah. even in the era of free agency, that's a very yeah, good chunk. A- yeah, and after that buyout, um, in the summer of 79, the Dodgers assigned him to the Lodi Dodgers of the high A level in the California League. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he posted a 1 and 2 record with a 1.13 ERA in limited um, appearances. They felt that he needed to learn to throw an off speed pitch, so they had Dodgers pitcher Bobby Castillo teach him to throw the screwball before 1980. And um, during that season, he was promoted to double A with the San Antonio Dodgers, where he led the Texas League with 162 Ks, finishing the season with. 13 and 9 record and a 310 ERA. He was called up to the bullpen of the Los Angeles Dodgers in September of 1980 in the last month of the season. So I'm assuming it's a September call up. Yep. He uh, helped the Dodgers to tie the Houston Astros for the NL West Division League, pitching 17 and two thirds scoreless over the course of 10 games, during which he earned two wins and a save. However, the Dodgers then lost a one game playoff and lost the division championship to the Astros. Yep, the Nolan Ryan Astros. The following season's where it gets fun, and it's also what the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary really covers. Um, he was named the opening day starter as a rookie after Jerry Royce was injured 24 hours before a scheduled start, and Bart Hooten was not ready to fill in. Valenzuela shut out the Astros 2-0 and started the season 8-0 with five shutouts and an ERA of .5. In addition to his dominance on the mound, his unusual and flamboyant pitching motion including a glance skyward at the apex of his windup, drew attention of its own. 
It was a habit he claims to have developed spontaneously, although not until joining the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. For those of you who uh, remember Tim Lipscomb, I feel like it's kind of similar to that, that big lean back. and Yeah, and they're just looking upwards towards the sky as if he's seeking approval from God or something like that, yeah. And that made him a media icon. Um, he drew large crowds from the Latin community of L.A., and every time he pitched, um, they would come out and watch him. And he had a tough baseball card to get, uh, 1981 and Tops and Fleer ball cards. Mm-hmm. Um, became known as Fernando Mania. And during his warm-up routine at Dodger Stadium, the PA system would play Abba's 1976 hit song, Fernando. <laughs> He became the first player to win the Rookie of the Year and the Cy Young Award in the same season. And he was also the first rookie to lead the National League in strikeouts. The, and the cherry on top of the Dodgers also won the World Series that season. So he had a hell of a Rookie of the Year season. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, going back to the Hispanic, uh, well, Latino, Hispanic uh, crowds going to Dodger Stadium, you have to realize, if you don't know anything about the history of how Dodger Stadium got built, the stadium was built in a... Hispanic neighborhood, I guess a poor Hispanic neighborhood knows Chavez Ravine. And when the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to L.A., they first played at the L.A. Coliseum, but they needed a new ballpark because they just couldn't play at the Coliseum the whole time they were in L.A. So they, I guess in a domain or something, the city of Los Angeles forced all those people of Chavez Ravine out of that neighborhood to build Dodger Stadium. And for years, like Hispanic Latinos would not go to Dodger games because of that. But once they got Fernando and he brought more interest, you know, he helped the Dodgers do great and win the World Series that year. He brought more interest in, you know, Hispanic, in the Hispanic community of LA. They started coming out to games because of Fernando. And that, that, get, that got covered a lot in the uh, documentary, too. So having Fernando was very monumental in, you know, connecting the Dodgers to the Hispanic community of LA. And, you know, to bring more fans and more money into the Dodgers organization. But, you know, his, his career, his stats that year, he went 13-7 in the strike short of the season. So I think even – so if the strike didn't happen, he probably would have got 20 games. No, he probably would have won 20 games. His ERA was 2.48, another great low ERA. You know, 11 complete games out of 25 starts, eight shutouts. He led – the National League in innings pitch with 192.1 and 180 strikeouts to 61 walks. I mean, he just, it was Fernando Mania, man. <laughs> you know, this dude was something else. And then, uh, so the 82 season, you know, I mean, he, you know, 82, he still was good. He didn't uh, flame out. He wasn't a one year wonder. Because if he was, why would we dedicate an episode to him? <laughs> and so before the A2 season he was awarded a million dollar salary in arbitration and I remember watching the 30 for 30 documentary about this about him getting this um, a million dollars in arbitration his agent made a a video a um, a a uh, a highlight video of his season to convince the Dodgers to give him that money. And at the end of the, near the end of that video, one of the team's executives for the Dodgers, Al Campanis, you know, he, there's a scene where Al Campanis looks up to this guy at Walter O'Malley because at the time Walter O'Malley passed away. He's like, Walter, this is the great Hispanic player you're looking for. Something like that. This is it. 
And because of that video and of his agents, uh, brilliant cunning and making that video, he got that million dollars. He earned that million dollars because of, hey, I helped the Dodgers win the World Series. I did great. I'm entitled to this million dollars, and he won it. So you know, <laughs> I'm really trying to imagine it being like a in Kenny Powers who's making his highlight reel and he's trying to make his comeback. Yeah, I'm really trying to imagine it being a video like that with flames and explosions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, but so 82, you know, going back to the 82 season, he got better. Win totals, he goes 19 and 13. His ERA is 2.87, so a little bit more than the his rookie year, but still lower than three. That's very good. And he didn't lead the lead anything, but he had 199 strikeouts. That was improvement from the previous season compared to 83 walks. I mean, he was just doing his thing, man. And this dude was a workhorse. You know, one thing, he just he did not like being taken out of games. He tried to start and finish games as much as he, you know, as much as he could. And, you know, the innings, he just racks up innings after innings, 285 innings in 82, which was the most in his career. You know, just like, you know, consecutive years of over 200 innings pitch. I mean, like, that's a lot of innings, man. I don't think, I don't know how many, I, I'm sure there's some pitchers today that go over 200 innings in a, in a season, but like, not to the consistency. Probably like, less now like, than there was in the 90s and early 2000s. Right, because there's more of a concern of pitchers getting hurt and you right. want to limit pitch counts and whatnot. I mean, even you got teams shutting guys down with the rookies and stuff now, like right. You know, like Jacob Degrom getting shut down uh, last year or something like that. It was just like, man, you know. But he just kept, you know, Fernando just kept on, kept on, kept on keeping on, and he developed a nickname after his debut. Valenzuela earned the nickname El Toro, which is the bull in Spanish. You know, because he's just a workhorse pitcher, he just bared down and. Yeah, he just got people out with his screwball. That's it. And then we fast forward a little bit to 1986. He signed a contract worth 5.5 million over three years, and in 2021 money that'd be 13.6 million due to inflation and all that. Mm -hmm. Probably, probably 18.6 after the way the last six months is going. But mm -hmm. that was the uh, wealthiest contract for a pitcher in baseball history. His annual average salary of 1.833 million. And 1988 salary of 2.05 million, also both set records. Yeah, he had one of the best seasons of his career in '86 when he finished 21 and 11 with a 3.14 ERA and led the league in wins, complete games, and innings pitched. He lost a narrow vet, narrow vote for the um, Cy Young to the Astros, Mike Scott. Wow! And at the '86 All Star game, he made history by striking out five consecutive American League batters, tying. A record set by fellow left-handed screwball Carl Hubble. Carl, Carl, yeah. By fellow left-handed screwballer Carl Hubble in the 1934 contest. Yeah, and they both—I mean, they both were in the National League and they both threw screwballs and, and both struck out five straight guys in the All-Star game. That's hard to do, man. Mm -hmm. And and then in '87, his performance declined. He went 14 and 14 with a 3.98 ERA. And, you know, it got to the point. So in 88, the Dodgers won the World Series again. 
but he only won just five games and missed much of the season despite not being on the postseason roster. Well, okay, he missed most of the season, I guess, because of injury. And despite not being on the postseason roster, because he was not in the 88 World Series, like Oral Hershiser was, uh, he still earned the second World Series ring because, you know, he was part of the team. But, you know, during the, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad because, like, during his decline, he improved slightly in 89 with a 10-13 record. And then in 1990, he posted a 13-13 record. But, and this was his, 90 was his last year with the Dodgers. And even though he was 13-13, he threw a no-hitter on June 29th, 1990 against the St. Louis Cardinals. And it was also on the same day that the Oakland Athletics' Dave Stewart threw a no-hitter against the Blue Jays. So you had two no-hitters in one day that day, on June 29, 1990. So even though Fernando was kind of slowing down at this point, to an extent, he was still Fernando. He was still winning and getting guys out. I mean, not everybody can throw a no-hitter. You know, you know, you have to be very good, and Fernando was like that. I like this fact about that no-hitter. Um, they were in the clubhouse watching it. Um, because... Stewart was a former Dodger. Yeah. And um, before the game, Fernando said to his teammates, y'all just saw a no-hitter on TV. Now you're going to see one in person. <laughs> <laughs> so he called it a shot, too. That's yeah. awesome. And um, early in his career, he had trouble communicating, obviously, coming from Mexico, um, not knowing much English. So Mike Sosha, who was caught up as a rookie, that's a name we should all remember, um, World Series champion as a manager, I believe. Yeah, it was an Angels. Uh, Long-time yeah, Angels manager. He, uh, he made the effort to learn Spanish, and because of that became Valenzuela's personal catcher. Well, the Dodgers before coming to full-time catcher. Yep. Yeah, I mean, pitchers, you know, I mean, pitchers will have their favorite catchers. It's Remember like, um, Smoltz, the Braves? Or, it's been Maddox and Smoltz always had their own guy. Yeah. You know? And like in the 70s in the Phillies, Steve Carlton always had uh, Tim McCarver as his catcher. You know, I mean, there there are some pitchers who have their personal catchers. I wish I could find a more relevant, uh, a more, oh, maybe uh, Yadier Molina and, oh, who's that pitcher? Adam right. Wainwright? Yeah, Molina catches everybody else, too. You know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a, he's an everyday player. He's not, you know, a part-time guy. There's a, I'm sure there's a handful of guys out there that are backup catchers that yeah. they play every fourth day whenever a certain dude's pitching. Right. I mean, or if somebody's hurt or, you know. And give props to Sosha for going out of his way to learn Spanish. Yes. Right? I mean, it's kind of, I mean, similar to like when Rusty Staub played in Montreal and he learned to speak French, talk to the French, the, the French Canadians in Montreal. I mean, you know, just, you know, you know, if you're going to get better, you do stuff out of the box to get better. Right? And he's like, hey, this guy, Fernando, he's great. You know, he's a great pitcher. I need to communicate with him. He doesn't know very, at the time, he didn't know English very well, so we got to learn Spanish. So let's do it. That's a sign of a great clubhouse guy, too, which probably translates to his success post playing career as a manager. Right. You know, I you mean, know. Sosha just knew how to talk to people. You know, he, he has a World Series ring as a, as a player and a manager. That's hard to do. Not too many guys have that. Not too many guys have that, no. So, and so, like I said, 90 was the last year as his Dodger. But everybody remembers him as a Dodger. Not many people remember him as his career outside the Dodgers. So we're going to get into that now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think of him as a Detroit Tiger, you know? <laughs> right, you know. So he he was released by the Dodgers in 91 after pitching ineffectively in spring training. Excuse me. 
And, you know, Tommy Lasorda and Dodgers owner at the time, Peter O'Malley, and Fred Clare, who was in the office, front office, they praised Valenzuela for creating exciting memories over several seasons, and they indicated that it was a difficult decision to release him. So, I mean, at least, I mean, they, they had a lot of time to think about it. It wasn't like some, you know, hotshot guy who just was a, couple, a clubhouse lawyer who was like, okay, we can get rid of him. This was a tough decision. Because he'd been there for like about, they probably talked about it for a week. Man. Yeah, I mean, they probably I mean, he was there for like ten seasons, and he did he helped lead the Dodgers to two World Series championships. This guy was a good, he was a good player, you know, great pitcher. And then later that year, he tried to make a comeback with the uh, California Angels, which that didn't work out for him. So his con- he wound up signing with the Tigers in the spring of, for, not, for the spring of '92, but he never played for the team and was out of the majors that same season with his contract being purchased by the. By Jalisco of the Mexican League that summer. He pitched and played some first base when well on the mound before making another brief comeback in 1993 with the Baltimore Orioles. Yep. And then he's just jumping in between the big leagues of Mexico for the next few seasons. And he was with the Padres from like 95 to 97. So he was a teammate of Tony Gwynn's around this time. He put up a good year in 96 too. Yeah. And 96... He goes 13 and 8. So this is the first time he's won 10 plus games since 1990. You know, 93 with Baltimore, he goes 8 and 10, 1 and 2 with the Phillies. And then, you know, the year before 95, he goes 8 and 3. So 13 and 8, he you know, is some, uh, some resemblance of the old Fernando Valenzuela comes back on the 96 Padres, you know. And so he goes 13 and 8 with a 3.62 ERA in 96. And then the next year, 97, he plays part, he plays with two teams, he plays for the Padres, and then he ends up on the Cardinals, where he retired that year, you know, after, he retired that year after going 2-8 and eight with the Padres, and then when he got traded to the Cardinals, he went 0-4. And so he finished his career in 97 with a 173 wins, 153 loss record, 3.54 ERA, you know, 2,930 innings pitched, and he struck out 2,074 batters compared to 1,151 walks. And then the Dodgers invited him to spring training in 99. He respectfully declined that offer. And then in 2004, he announced he was going to return to the mound in the Mexican Pacific Coast League <laughs> to play for Los Angeles Day, Mexicali. In October, he was nearly 44 at the time. He pitched again in Mexican Winter League in 05 and 06. And on December 20, 2006, in Mexicali, Mexico, he was the starting pitcher for the Los Angeles Day Mexicali in the last professional game of his career. So he tried, you know, to keep going in his 40s, but that's just tough to do, man. At least he was at a lower level, you know. Yeah, so. I mean, you could do that. I mean, majors not so much, but. It's like Manny's still playing somewhere. Yeah, like Manny Ramirez was playing in Taiwan a few years ago. And Clemens, long after he retired from the big leagues, was pitching in like Andy Ball. And yeah, stuff he like played Sugarland Skeeters. And then Clemens was on a. There used to be a tournament in Wichita, Kansas called the National Baseball Congress. And one year in the 2010s, there the there was a team in the NBC tournament that had a bunch of former major leaguers. And Clemens was on that team. So, you know, he's trying to do that. I mean, you can do stuff in indie ball. 
like Brandon Phillips, the former uh, player for the Reds, the second baseman for the Reds, he's playing indie ball in Lexington, Kentucky for the Lexington Legends right now. You know, I mean, like, you know, if you can't. Even though you lose the major league edge, there's still somewhere you can go play. Right. You know, there's, and he's a name, and Lexington's fairly close to Cincinnati. People are going to remember him. You know, he's recently retired, well, recently retired from playing major league baseball, you know. Put asses in seats. Yeah, and you know when you when you play, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to realize when it's time to hang it up. Some guys, you know, if they if they can stay fit, they can play forever, like Satchel Paige, right? You know, but or Julio Franco or somebody, you know. But it's just eventually, father time comes, and it's like you got you have to realize when it's time to hang it up. And you can always play men's league, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I did. Um, Cool thing about Valenzuela also is more than just a pitcher. He could hit the ball a little bit. His best year at the plate was 1990, which was his last year with the Dodgers, when he hit 304 with five doubles, a home run, 11 RBIs, and his 69 at-bats. That gave him a 101 OPS+, plus, meaning he ranked just above average of all National League hitters, not just pitchers. With 187 hits and 936 career at-bats, roughly two full seasons worth of at-bats for a full-time position player, his career batting average was 200 with 10 home runs, 26 doubles, 84 RBIs. Mm-hmm. He was even used on occasion as a pinch hitter, batting 368. He went 7 for 19 in such situations. Uh, twice while with the Dodgers, he was called upon to play outfield and first base in marathon extra inning games in which he didn't pitch, and he won the Silver Slugger Award for pitchers in 1981 and 1983. Yeah. It is. And it sounds like he got screwed out of one in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> and think about it, you know, it's just, it, it's, well, now pitchers don't bat at all in the major league. Which is sad, but to I extent, hate it, man. Yeah, but there are <laughs> some good hitting pitchers, like Valenzuela was one of them. You know, I mean, sure he he batted the Mendoza line for his career, but you know, when you're a pitcher, most pitchers hit like 120, right? You know, that's still or 86, like right? You know, and then like you know, in the old days, Wes Farrell, an old pitcher for the Red Sox and Cleveland Indians, like I think he had like. I think he holds the record for most home runs for a pitcher in a career of like 38 or something like that. Somewhere in the 30s. And, you know, he's going to still hold that record because bat- pitchers are not going to bat anymore. You know, he- he's going to hold that record forever. It's like Cy Young's 500 career wins. Yeah. You know, 500. 500 left. Yeah, nobody's going to touch that. Nobody, nobody's going to touch Wiss Farrell's. Uh, I think the new 300 for wins is probably 270. Right. Honestly, yeah. maybe 250. It's sad, isn't it? But because they don't, like we were talking about earlier in this episode, they don't ride these guys. They don't have workhorses like Fernando anymore. Right. Because they're too afraid to use them a lot because they're afraid to damage their arms. Right. And I understand that. We don't, you no, know, I don't want to see anybody get injured playing ball. And these players are a lot more of an investment now. Right. Because they're more, they're thinking, well, yeah, the we, guy signed two hundred million dollar contracts, man. Like, right? You know, like Mets shutting down Jacob Degrom a couple times. You know, it's like I feel bad for Jacob Degrom being on the Mets. It's like, dude, at least he, they're finally good. Yeah, he won when he won the Cy Young in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. His record was like ten and nine, and I'm like, that's awful. And because he, there were so many no decisions, I'm like, that's just awful, man. You got to get on a better team. At least they're finally pretty good. Yeah, the Mets are finally they got a chance this year. Yeah, show old Showalter. I like him a lot. Yeah, he's a good man. I like that Cohen guy that's on that team too. Steve Co- yeah, yeah, Steve Cohen. Well, Stevie seems like he's going to be willing to put a little money where it needs to go and oh. do some stuff that the Wilpons weren't. Yeah, he has, he has a lot more money than Wilpons does. 
Oh, he's loaded. He's loaded. Well, the Wilpins got hung up in that Ponzi scheme with the what's his name? Yeah. Lost oh, a lot of their money. Oh yeah, uh, Madoff, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, because they were friends. They were mm-hmm. friends of Bernie Madoff. It's like yikes. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then so after his career, Valenzuela. He returned to the Dodgers organization in 2003 as a Spanish-language radio color commentator for NL West games, joining Jaime Harin, J-A-R-R-I-N, oh, with the uh, accent on the I, and Pepe Yeniguez. Oh, man. We're trying, guys. We're trying. And then in 2015, he was switched to the color commentator job on Spanish-language feed for Sportsnet LA. So he go, you know, like a lot of former major leaguers, he goes into the world of broadcasting, which is great, and especially uh, Spanish language broadcasting. Is he still the uh, Sportsnet broadcaster? I have no idea. Because it doesn't say any. I didn't see anywhere where it said he quit doing it. You know, he may still be doing it then. But again, and if he is awesome. Yeah, and then he also, you know, in the first World Baseball Classic in two thousand six. He was on the coaching staff for Team Mexico for that one, and then 2019, 2013, and 2017 World Baseball Classics. And in 2017, he purchased a Mexican League team, the Tigres de Quintana Roo, or the Quintana Roo Tigers, in 2017. So he's also a team owner, or was a team owner. You know, So, you know, he's doing stuff. He's still in the game. He's still involved in the game, even though he's no longer playing the game. Which that's always a plus, and it's hard to do, mm-hmm. man. It's hard to, you know. But you know, even though he is not in the base National Baseball Hall of Fame, and may or may not ever be inducted to the National Baseball Hall of Fame, he's in some Hall of Fames. Like for like we mentioned in the beginning, he was inducted to the Mexican Baseball Hall of Fame in 2014. He was also inducted to the Hispanic Heritage Baseball Museum Hall of Fame in August of 2003 in a pregame ceremony at Dodger Stadium. And then, you know, in 2013, he was enshrined in the Caribbean Baseball Hall of Fame. And in 2006, he was inducted to Baseball Reliquary's Shrine of the Eternals. And he was a member of the MLB's Latino Legends team in 2005, one of three starting pitchers. So, and, and of course, you know, they have the Dodgers have unofficially kept Valenzuela's jersey number, which was number thirty-four, when he played the Dodgers, out of circulation, and they named him, you know, as part of the initial class of Legends of Dodgers Baseball twenty nineteen. So I guess I don't think they've officially retired it, but they kept it out of circulation because I guess they're going to out of respect and you know, I guess I'm maybe sure they'll retire it at some point. Yeah, and then. Um, in 2010, the documentary we mentioned a couple of times, which if you haven't seen it, go watch it. You so got ESPN good. Plus. If you don't have it, you can get a three-day trial. Go watch it. It is so good. And just cancel it when you're done with it. You know? um, mm-hmm. But it's called Fernando Nation. And then on, in 2017, he threw the first pitch at Game 2 of the World Series at Dodger Stadium, introduced by recently retired announcer Ben Scully and joined by Steve Yeager. Yeah. And the Mexican Baseball League commemorated his legacy on the 6th of July, 2019, and retired his jersey, number 34, from the entire league. So kind of like MLB do with Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I mean, I think out of, and I, I wish I could, I mean, we'd go on baseball records to figure this out, but like, you know, of all the baseball players, major league baseball players who've come from Mexico, 
it seems like to me, at least in my mind, Fernando Valenzuela stands out as probably the most well-known and significant out of all of them. And I'm sure they all, there's all been great players out of Mexico that played in the majors and the Negro Leagues, but Valenzuela just stands out because of this. I think a big part of it was the effect the poppy got in the Los Angeles community, too. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, in California and Los Angeles, there's a huge Hispanic population out there, and he was perfect that. I mean, people latched onto him. They cheered him on. They are like, hey, you know, we can go to Dodgers games now. You know, we can... I mean, what, what happened at Chavez Ravine was wrong in the beginning, but, hey, we can kind of forgive that and, you know, can cheer on this. Hell, 1981 was the summer of Fernando out west. Right. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was Fernando. He was the guy. He was the guy. I mean, nobody nobody else in baseball in 1981 captured the imagination like Valenzuela did. The closest thing I can think of that we have had in our lifetime was probably the home run race through the pot that he had in that sector of the country. Yeah, 98, yeah. Um and so, you know, Valenzuela, in the same year as Fernando Mania in 81, he married Linda Burgos, a school teacher from Mexico. She's also his co-owner in the baseball uh, team. Oh, nice. And, you know, they had four kids. One of his sons, Fernando Jr., played in the Padres and White Sox organizations as a first baseman. And he's also played in minor league ball in Mexico or independent leagues. So, you know, he got the baseball bug like his dad. And this is one of my favorite parts about him coming up. He uh, became a citizen of the United States in a ceremony in downtown Los Angeles on, on July of 2015, which awesome. That's Good for awesome. him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, for those of y'all that know anybody that's gone through that process, it's not an easy thing to do. Right. It takes time. It takes years. And money. Yeah, money. <laughs> um, he's participated in two Terminal Roses parades in 1983 aboard the float from the government of Mexico in 2008 on the Dodgers float. And he also has participated in 81. He participated in the East LA Christmas Parade as the Grand Marshal. So he's just been out and about. He's his personal guy. You know, I mean, he still, people still smile when they hear or see Fernando Valenzuela, you know, to hear the name Fernando Valenzuela, it brings a smile to people's faces because he, you know, he left a big impact on the game of baseball, you know, so, a likes of which we probably will never see again, you know, like that whole, you know, the mania thing. I mean, like maybe you could compare it. I mean, I don't even know you can compare it to when like Ichiro came in 2001. It wasn't like that big of a mania, like, uh, Fernando coming to the Dodgers, you know. According to Bleach Report, he's the eighth greatest Dodger player of all time. That's pretty darn good. And there's been a lot of great Dodger players, especially in the Brooklyn days. You know, you know, obviously Jackie Robinson's going to be number one, and Kershaw's two on that list. Right. You know, and uh, <laughs> you I know. think I think I saw Kurt Gibson on it. Yeah, because he's iconic coming around second. You know. Yeah, I mean, he's got that moment. And of course, you know, and then like. Necessary managers like Tommy Lasorda and Walter Alston, you know. And, uh, Mr. Dodger right there. Yeah, Tommy. Uh, Mr. He's a guy we need to do an episode on. I miss Tommy Lasorda, man. Oh, well, oh, that was a sad day when he died last year. Yeah, we'll have an episode on him soon. Yeah. He came, he came to Huntsville in 2019 when the Aerojet Rocketdyne had their expansion, rib cutting expansion ceremony because he was a board member of Aerojet Rocketdyne. And I was like, what? Tommy's a board member? What in the world? Yeah. 
But it's just, I love Tommy's sword. But anyway, and like, you know, Tommy, and as far as I know, Tommy and Fernando got along great. At least it showed that in the documentary anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just put that on the list for something we'll talk about soon. Yeah, I mean, we could add, we'll add Tommy's sword to the list. If anybody else hasn't suggested it yet, but we'll, we'll add to the list. And Shoot, man, I just don't know, what, I don't know what else to say about Fernando. I think it's a pretty straightforward story with him. Yeah, it's a little short. I know it's a little short this week, guys, so maybe we can uh, get together and release an episode this next week. Maybe so I'll give you two for the price of one. Yeah, I mean, we can do, yeah, this is totally fine. We can double down, but uh, I don't have anything else to add, man. No, me either. We covered, we basically covered it, and... You know, if you haven't seen the documentary, go see the documentary. It's called Fernando Nation. It's one of the it was one of the first thirty for thirties that came out in 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. Great, it's on ESPN Plus. ESPN Plus is like four ninety nine a month. Yeah, or they'll give you a free trial for three days. You can cancel it. But yeah. go see the documentary. Go see the documentary. Go drop what you're doing. Go see that documentary, and then you'll you'll thank us for doing that. All right. As always, I'm Patrick, and I'm Matthew. Thank you for listening to Baseball History 101. Thank you. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke And me, I always loved Willie Mann Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Cuisinberry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke, they'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Say
walking 